Welcome to Red Star Over Asia. I'm Bori, and we have here today Mike. How y'all doing, guys? And Jay. What's up? So today we don't have a guest. We're going to talk among ourselves, but we had a pre-discussion. We prepared in advance a reading of two articles. One, the specificity of imperialism in Viewpoint Magazine by Salar Mohandesi, and the second one is towards an East Asian solidarity at the homepage of Platform C, a South Korean social movement organization, and this one is by Myungu Hong and translated by me. All right, so the idea of today's discussion was starting out with Salar's piece. And discussing the theoretical problems or issues in trying to concretize the theory of imperialism, and and that's that's the entire point of the piece. It gets into the specifics and the ontours, impasses, and try to think how we could still apply the concept of imperialism today with a further enrichment by outlining those problems. And then the second piece would be. Trying to provide an account of, I guess, starting out from South Korea. What is South Korea's position in the world? How do we articulate a theoretical ground piece which would inform? So it would be this sort of revolutionary. There is no revolutionary practice without revolutionary theory, and this would be a kind of the beginning, the outlines of such a theory, trying to address. What is specific in in South Korea? What is specific in this region called East Asia? It, the piece in particular tries to utilize the concept of East Asia, or try tries to make East Asia, in the name of the region, a concept to articulate the issues at hand here. The structure of our talk today, discussion today, would be providing a sort of summary and bringing up some points. And then riffing off among us. It starts out with David Harvey's provocation about whether the concept of imperialism. Is still adequate today. He had suggested that the concept of imperialism was sort of a straitjacket. That modern phenomena is just fit into it with this universal conception of what it is, and and then he suggests maybe we should do away with it. And recently, I've also seen this discussion between、uh, David Harvey's most recent book, a book panel of that, and with with Vijay Prashad on it. And I think his comments. Shed some light on this previous suggestion by David Harvey. So Vijay talked about how David Harvey, in his new book and in his other articles prior to that, already addressed modern aspects of imperialism, just did not call it by that name. So when David Harvey tries to maybe disavow using the concept of imperialism, we do not need to really heed into that or accept that, but more of a, approach it and try to enrich the concept, not just trying to apply some sort of universal、uh, conception of it, and more get into the weeds and see how different developments determine the concept today, which is, I think, the entire point of Salar's piece. 
So we could take heed of Harvey's provocation and enrich the concept of imperialism while not entirely doing away with it. So one of the central arguments that Salar brings into it is how imperialism and capitalism are deemed as the same thing. So, quote, there's a tendency to see imperialism as a symptom of the inevitable contradictions of capitalism development. Unquote. So this is sort of an, a critique of the economism of a lot of accounts of imperialism. And Salar's the conceptual thr- thrust of the piece would be that imperialism and capitalism are two distinct categories. And also that there isn't a general theory of imperialism which we can then apply the specifics of a certain situation and determine whether this is imperialism or not, or what what the outcomes of such a situation would turn into. And by doing that, by arguing that these are two distinct categories and that there is no general theory, quote, this is to decouple the concept of imperialism from capitalism, then does not at all mean abandoning the quote-unquote economic. It opens it opens the space to develop concrete inquiries that more accurately grasp the specificity of different forms of imperialism, unquote. The second point of this piece would be that conceptualizing imperialism not as a thing, but as a relationship. Quote, Indeed, if the state is a relationship between social forces, then imperialism could be broadly understood as a relationship between states. Though, of course, the causes, meanings, and specific forms of these relationships vary historically. That would be then, end quote. And then, finally, I think another critique that Salar brings in would be the critique of teleology uh, in in various accounts of imperialism. So when there is a talk discussion about different stages of capitalism, whether this this stage is of monopoly capitalism, capital or and whether it's semi-feudal or not, there's this teleological account of how capitalism should develop and determining what points in history this is. And this already has an answer in advance and ver- the various concepts are then, they are already determined, which are then applied into uh, real historical developments, which is usually much more messy than we can account for. So how to avoid those kind of teleological arguments in, in our theory, in a, in a new articulation of the theory of imperialism. And at the final sections of the piece, there's a quick run-through uh, of post-war history for imperialism between capitalist states, and then imperialism in the global south, and then imperialism conducted by uh, nominal socialist states as well. So these would be the further challenges in investigating the specific forms of contemporary imperialism. So the piece isn't proposing a general theory of imperialism, whereas all everything before was wrong. It's more of a working through previous conceptions of imperialism to see where some theories fall short and then providing an, a short, brief historical overview of post-war development because uh, a lot of theories of imperialism take away from Lenin's pamphlet, which was written at the outbreak of the First World War. So it, it poses questions rather than showing off answers. And this is where I guess we could jump off and start riffing. 
Uh, that was a great summary. Thank you, Bori. Let's kind of start off with what Bori said about David Hardy and Vijay Prashad. Just one tangential note. When I when I watched the video, what I found kind of funny was that Vijay Prashad like makes his disagreements in a very polite way. He's constantly like lavishing Harvey with compliments, and then later when you see someone like condense it into a video, he says, "Uh." Uh, was it always like a YouTube channel called Red Ann clipped the sections of where he presented David Harvey's new book and the incoherence of his approach to the world, including his disavowal of the role of imperialism. I just found that really funny. Um, yeah, I really liked the article. Um, specifically, I liked how they pointed out that they weren't really trying to debunk any any of the competing theories on imperialism, but kind of show that they're part of not just like the changing mode of imperialism, but that imperialism works in different ways in different countries. Like if you, I mean, if you look at the traditional view of imperialism, right, it's about like a, you know, a metropole exploiting usually like the natural resources or labor of the periphery through the state and capital. And I know there's more, but that's like, a, I think there's like a general overview of how most people view imperialism. But then you say, like, well, what about Korea, where okay, there is this unequal relationship, but you also see that the U.S. allowed the country to essentially industrialize. So I found this to be a very interesting and provocative article, and it's always good to be provocative, usually, um, especially when it comes to like sort of these key terms that we take for granted on the, the socialist left, like imperialism. I think there's sort of like people just sort of assume they know what that is. And this article is saying maybe we have to kind of problematize this concept a little bit. It's not maybe what you think it is exactly. So Bori's summary was really good. And because you mentioned in the minds of like how we kind of sort of generally think about imperialism, it's sort of like there's these core countries, you know, the U.S. and their, you know, their, you know, NATO, essentially, maybe Japan and South Korea, sort of like junior partners in imperialism, so to speak, Canada, et cetera, sort of just extract resources from the periphery. So you have the core countries extracting resources from the periphery. Um, and I think the the author of this piece has tried to say, like, well, that is very a very simplistic view that maybe had a lot more accuracy a long time ago, but it's a little bit outdated because now you have basically a unipolar world with the U.S. Is, but, you know, there are these like rising powers and like, you know, what some comrades in Latin America that I know would refer to as like sub-imperialism, like the role of Brazil in Latin America, for example. So I think the author's trying to like sort of like suss all of this out and kind of explore this whole thing of, about imperialism. And I think one thing, um, you know, I'm the token American on the show, so I'm going to use... Uh, the American references, like, you know, was salient for me, I guess, in thinking about this. I think the most interesting thing in this piece to me was talking about, like, the, the theory of the state. And, you know, he starts by talking about Lenin's pamphlet, uh, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. And it's a it's a minor thing here, but he says it's a it's a translation error. It's, he, Lenin was saying it's the latest stage of capitalism. And, you know, there's this tendency on the Marxist left to like take these like pamphlets that were very much directed at like the concrete circumstances existing and where these authors were, like the Communist Manifesto, that's the case, uh, Lenin's pamphlet, etc. Like these were very contextual, historically specific polemics that were around organizing people for those specific circumstances. But there's been this, you know, unhealthy tendency over the past century to like elevate these into like eternal theories of imperialism or socialism or whatever that apply under all circumstances. So I really liked how he said he kind of like 
you know, pushed that aside a little bit and acknowledges that like a lot of things have happened in history since then. I also liked how he talked about how the state is not just like the ruling class does not have a uniform. They're not completely 100% on the same page of, of what the best strategy is to exploit workers and like engage in imperialism. There are arguments within the ruling class, and sometimes the ruling class adopts strategies that actually aren't that are actually detrimental to their interests. So he's bringing the other factors because I think sometimes we think that the ruling class is just universally all on the same page about like we're going to do this to exploit the workers, and they always have the best strategy to do it. Um, but there's all these like complicated factional disputes. There's layers to the ruling class, like they have different factions and then like there's a, a degree of autonomy to the state in some way like um so one of the things he's critiquing here is stagism which is you know societies just progress through this teleological thing as Bory mentioned like this this uh whole piece running through it the subtext is a critique of teleology in a lot of ways so to bring it back to an american example take trump for example so trump right-wing bigoted hyper-capitalist super neoliberal, despite his like sort of like rhetoric or whatever, you would think the ruling class would be totally on the same page with that. But there were elements within the state that are not one to one with the ruling class. Like there is like the ruling class and the state are not one to one. They're related, but they're not one to one. So you did like throughout the Trump presidency, you saw these arguments and these like they became public. I mean, people leaking documents, the FBI director going against Trump, like the you know, what they would call the deep state, which I think refers to a real thing, but I don't like to use that term so much because it kind of plays into their rhetoric. But the Trump presidency is sort of a, a, a very good illustration of this. There, there are conflicts within the ruling class because many elements of the ruling class in the United States, for example, did not like Trump because he was too chaotic in foreign affairs. He was fucking up NATO. He was ruining, he was uh, degrading relationships with the allies that you need in order to like successfully engage in imperialism. Not because he was an anti-imperialist, just because he was such a chaotic, kind of uncontrollable populist figure. And that's not to defend Trump, um, but it's just to, to illustrate that like the ruling class is not always on the same page about imperialism, which I think is one of the important takeaways of this piece. Uh, the other main thing that I really took away from this was, again, it, it relates to the stagism piece so the idea that like the core countries are going to just like keep these peripheral countries in a, in a permanent state of dependency and in the piece you know we're all in south korea the author specifically mentions south korea which bucks this trend like south korea rapidly developed i mean it is astounding you know the way it was developed is you know that's a whole another conversation but south korea is definitely a highly developed capitalist country that arguably, which that's another provocative thing that is opened up in this piece, arguably, if you you could read this piece and then think South Korea engages in, in its own forms of imperialism or sub-imperialism or regional imperialism. But that's sort of more related to the, the second article we'll talk about. I think a lot of people don't think about that because there are the, like, you know, the U.S. investing in South Korea and, and promoting its development was maybe detrimental to, to the interests of American capital like in terms of just like profit margins and like just making money and like stock prices. But why did the U.S. invest so hard into developing South Korea and supporting its its rapid development? It's because South Korea was a strategic bulwark against North Korea. South Korea developing and becoming more successful than North Korea was part of a broader geopolitical project. So like the ruling class will, you know, one, act irrationally sometimes because, you know, 
like any group of people, like you don't always make a decision that's in your best interest. Like the ruling class sometimes makes really bad strategic decisions, but also they will take short term hits for long term gain, which I think was the case with South Korea. You know, the Marshall Plan after World War II, World War II is referenced several times in this piece. The Marshall Plan in World War II was, you know, the U.S. investing, rebuilding Europe after the Second World War. That was sort of a short term hit. It's, it cost a lot of money, but it set the stage for U.S. companies to dominate. And it also was a bulwark against the spread of, you know, so-called communism, the USSR having an influence in Western Europe. Well, there's a lot of things I want to talk about what you just said, but. I guess one thing, since you mentioned South Korea, is I can understand South Korea's industrialization is part of like uh, they, you know, because it's true. Like South Korean economy invested in industries that arguably were a threat to a lot of core industries in the U.S. at the time, right? The auto industry, heavy metals, chemicals, but it was seen as like a necessary like kind of concession to like creating an anti-communist buffer in Asia. But that doesn't, to me, like, that doesn't explain other countries' industrializations or not, not industrialization, but like modern modernization programs that happen, at, you know, at a later period. Like, for example, how do you explain Vietnam, which is not a U.S. ally, is a, you know, a communist state. You can argue if it's, you know, nominal or real, but that's, that's a, another topic, you know, but it is a country that is, you know, heavily modernizing, right? Its industries are rapidly growing. It doesn't fit into a traditional narrative of sort of an industrial, you know, or wealthy core and, a, you know, a, a unequal relationship with a poor kind of um, resource heavy periphery. Well, I think you mentioned Vietnam. I mean, my understanding is South Korea's many South Korean companies, particularly Samsung, do have sort of a not imperialistic or yeah, I don't want to use any of these loaded terms, but like. South Korean companies do operate in Vietnam. There was a, a, a story where like Samsung, I think it was Samsung, they uh, used Vietnamese security forces to repress a wildcat strike at a factory that was uh, part of one of Samsung's like conglomerates. I mean, Samsung is like a huge company. So like the name of the particular company may not be Samsung, but it's like under the umbrella of Samsung, you know, the Chabol system. For our listeners who don't don't know much about the Chabol system, there's a, a handful of companies kind of run most of the economic activity in South Korea. Yeah, I mean, Viet, you know, trying to characterize the nature of the Vietnamese states, uh, that's a complicated question. But um, I think this piece is trying to, like, provoke us to think about that more clearly. It's like, well, the, you know, the U.S. is not so much involved, which the U.S. did restore normal trade relations with Vietnam. Again, it was a strategic. On the one hand, they want to limit the, they want to isolate, you know, even nominally communist states. But on the other hand, like Vietnam, like is potentially a big market for cheap labor to produce goods that the U.S. needs. Like that, that's a big part of this article. And South Korea is also like interested in that. But you know, is South Korea an imperialist global empire? Of course not. But there's like these sub-relationships that are like quasi have imperialistic elements to it. And I think, as Boris said, like the, the piece isn't trying to say, I'm going to, in 30 pages, like solve the question of what imperialism is. But as you know, it's a left-wing article. We never have answers in any articles that we write. It's always, we are trying to phrase the questions in new ways to think about it in a different way, which is useful. But um, I think that's what they were trying to do is to get us thinking about those things, which we don't think about enough, because usually we think the U.S., Western Europe, 
you know, NATO just dominate the rest of the world. And then maybe, you know, China's sort of China and Russia is sort of like kind of competing with them. But generally, it's just this like really unipolar thing. And I think the author is trying to say that it's a, it's a bit more complicated than that. That's what I'm trying to wrap around my head. Because, you know, the I don't think main narrative, but like a common narrative for like those who read dependency theory, right, is that you can't have these stages, right, between from like agrarian that's necessarily feudal but like a non-industrial country that needs to go into industrialization phase before it can go to the other forms of industry but that because of the nature of the world economy these countries in the periphery are forced in an undeveloped state but you know countries like vietnam or south korea kind of like kind of bring into question that narrative because you these smaller countries do rapidly develop and then you wonder like well why is countries like Vietnam or South Korea will develop, but you can't see that in Latin America or Africa. So those those are questions that South Korean scholars have tried to address as well. So its determinations was South Korea's position in geopolitics. So the, the U.S. after winning the Second World War now had this whole world to carve up into its uh, sphere of influence. And where it started was Japan, Soviet Union was advancing southwards and was bringing the world the war to a close as well. That's one of the reasons why the U.S. dropped atomic bombs in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And there was also a massive suppression of the communist forces within Japan. South Korea was created by holding its general elections first, despite protests from Koreans inside the Korean Peninsula, in China, and in Japan. And there was a massive suppression of leftist popular forces within Japan and Korea because of that. Now, after, after, after the Korean War and South Korea was this sort of bulwark against uh, communism in the North from both China, Soviet Union, and the DPRK, it became a, a, a kind of show window. So if you don't take the communist side, you can develop, you can uh, become this sort of capitalist, liberal democracy, et cetera, et cetera, stuff like that. So despite it being under military dictatorship, I guess there was a great push for development. Now, there's also local actors that pursued different strategies. So what kind of industrialization plan, uh, moving from... Uh, gar- the garment industry in the 70s to more heavy industries in metal producing, auto industry, uh, semiconductors, these all happened starting in the 80s. This, this change might be at the level of state development, but it was also at a, at a certain level allowed and pushed for. There's a variety of factors at play here, and we'll need to look into the local context and see how those factors interact with each other. So there might be a history of imperialism playing into the development of South Korea and how to understand that, but it wouldn't be a theory of imperialism applied to South Korea. It wouldn't be... So South Korea... There was this... So social social formation debates in the late 80s to early 90s was all about this, about whether South Korea was a semi-feudal feudal, half a colony of the United States or whether it was – so whether it's a neo-colonial state, state monopoly capitalism system. And these were the two competing theories of the, at the time. 
And I, I, I would say that both fall into the traps of this sort of stagism and the entire discussion was based upon at which stage is South Korea located at, whether that rather than trying to provide an account of South Korea's unique place, unique in the sense that every every single state development is singular in, in the world system. The problem is, is that although I could have a lot of, of critiques of the debates held and the theoretical positions even made by Marxists back then, these discussions are no longer being held. And even, even when there are talks about how should East Asian regional studies be conducted, what would world systems analysis contribute to such a, such a study, these are all at very abstract theoretical, at a very abstract conceptual level, rather than actually do, doing the groundwork to build towards such a theory. And so there, is, there are, I guess, sort of piecemeal theorizations of the inner workings. So you would see a study of South Samsung Capital, as Mike mentioned, operating in Vietnam, how Samsung is applying their 70-year-old uh, no-labor-union-allowance uh, company policy into other Southeast Asian countries as well. And what that brings, what kind of malpractices that brings about, but it's it's not at a level. It's it, it, I don't think there's a conscious effort to bring all these different studies together. So when you talk about when there's a discussion about South Korea rapidly developing and even more so today, and about its GDP, about its living standards, etc., these are all at a domestic. It's the discussions are at the uh, criteria, the the relevant factors being weighed in are all domestic factors. It, there's no account for how Korean capital is operating abroad and what kind of value extraction is happening from abroad as well. And and I think that's another central point of imperialism, the relationship between the periphery and the center would be about how much value is being extracted from the periphery. I think South Korea is now in a place where it can speak of extracting capital, uh, capital investing abroad and extracting value from, from those places. Yet, I, don't, I, I've, I haven't encountered a lot of studies accounting for that. And these, these were, uh, so that those, we, those were the questions I had in, head, uh, I had in my mind when I was approaching this topic and thought this these two articles might bring us in a position to uh i guess prepare to try to uh bring about a more unified integrated account of south korea's position i question to you guys i'm curious what you guys think about this is uh so for me one of the the big takeaways from this article this piece is that the state is not this uniform, everyone's on the same page, just like pure representative of the ruling class interests. There are arguments within the ruling class and some strategies are going to be best for them. Some strategies are going to be not so best for them because the ruling class is, you know, in general terms, kind of primarily motivated by pursuing profit and preserving their position. But you have things like, then this is referenced in the piece to some degree, 
you have sort of these sort of like un economic cultural things and like political things that are not directly one-to-one related to like material economic foundations nationalism like this sense of aristocracy etc that like complicate disputes within the ruling class and uh i already mentioned like how i think this sort of played out uh in the u.s under trump but i'm curious what you guys think how how do you think this is playing out in south korea like what what are the what are the arguments within the the South Korean ruling class, the South Korean, you know, two main parties, which are, you know, more or less avatars for like competing factions within the ruling class in terms of their like material interests and like who funds them and like just sort of their like, you know, the people they reflect. So what do you think in South Korea? What are the what are the main arguments between or within the South Korean ruling class about how to best better position South Korea as sort of this like sub-imperial power and like promote its chable businesses and like facilitate them being able to extract value from Vietnam and other countries. How do you see that? I'm not aware of, of partitioning in the ruling class other than, I guess, I guess you could say that for the differences between liberals and conservatives so the liberals would be more outspoken and so in relation to north korea for example uh the liberals would try to it started under kim dae-jung as this sunshine policy where uh the conservatives were always trying were the wind trying to blow off the coats of the dprk whereas the liberals would have promote the policy of the sunshine where you just gradually warm them up to have them take their coats off by themselves. So whether it's a hawk policy of being just antagonistic wherever you go, or a dove policy where you try to be more smart about it, there's a certain divide. There is certainly a divide in that sense. Well, that's a really good point. I didn't think about that. But yeah, the because, I mean, one thing you've brought up before, Bori, is that even the liberals like Moon Jae-in, you know, who's been lauded for, you know, he went to Pyongyang and like has met with Kim Jong-un and like warmed the diplomacy and kind of made some breakthroughs that have in some ways gone beyond the sunshine policy in the 90s. But still the narrative is, as you you brilliantly made this point, the narrative is always like when you're they're trying to sell it to like, you know, skeptical South Korean voters. It's like, well, look, there are economic opportunities in the North, cheap labor, um, they have the northern half of the peninsula has a lot of minerals that the southern half doesn't that could be exploited using South Korean technology, cheap North Korean labor, et cetera. So it, it like even within the Korean peninsula, there is this sort of like I don't want to say imperialistic because that's a you know, it's a big word. But there is this sort of like uh, exploitative like sort of logic towards like, uh, you know, because there's one way to think about Korean unification from the left national liberation faction. It's like about opposing imperialism, reunifying the, reunifying the country and like expelling the presence of, you know, 28,000 foreign troops, etc. But there's this sort of like neoliberal way to think about uh, Korean unification is like, you know, it's sort of like a car salesman commercial. It's like, there's a, this is a great business opportunity. Like, so, you know, a lot of like right wing, you know, South Korean like business people who are just like vir- virulently anti-communist. But you're like, look, we can make a lot of money if we do this. And like Kaesong Industrial Complex is sort of like the first test for that, right? It's like we got South Korean capital, South Korean technology. I'm sure American investment was involved in that as well. Uh, And we got cheap North Korean laborers. 
and uh, also it also serves U.S. geopolitical interests to bring it back to imperialism. Uh, a reunified North Korea, or at least uh, economic engagement with North Korea that sort of like diffuses tensions on the peninsula and puts pressures on China, serves the interests of American capital as well. I think I would I would say I don't think that that's how it works. Okay, cool. So that's, I think yeah, for for U.S. If U.S. geopolitical interests, it would be much better for there not to be reunification for, with North Korea because North Korea serves as a very good justification for continued U.S. Um, presence. Good point. It's always, already viewed as this global menace. It has nukes and it's inflammatory language usage. Uh, the Twitter outflage between Trump and Kim Jong-un. Like these, these are like widely acknowledged. So as long as North Korea seem, is seem deemed as this irrational actor that will lash out at any, any moment, that serves as justification for continued American presence. Oh, that's a really good point, yeah. The DPRK itself doesn't, doesn't really pose a threat to the United States. Like, there's, it's, it's not that much of a big weight. But it it does serve as a great justification. So for a more concrete example... The Saad missile defense system that is has been installed in Songju of the Gyeongsangbukdo province is was brought in uh, justified domestically under the Park administration as providing a sort of missile defense from North Korean missiles. It's 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 obviously bullshit because even by its own uh, programmatic statements, uh, there it's it's it shoots out. It shoots down missiles in the middle of its uh, trajectory, which is usually traveling very far up into the atmosphere, stratosphere, uh, because it's it's continental like uh, ICBMs or something like that. But South Korea is way too close for that to for the need to shoot it up that high, and it will land at its target way too fast before the missile defense can really operate. So that was only on the surface level justification, yet it was it was uh, explicitly mentioned that the DPRK was its target. But obviously it's it's a target against China. Yeah. And and it's 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 a defense against the DPRK's missiles reaching the U.S. Now there is there is talks about how the missile defense system itself is mostly bullshit. There are lots of cheap methods to uh, bypass it, like for example, uh, shooting up metal balloons that will uh, intercept the defense system, and then it'll, it'll be shooting down balloons instead of missiles. Uh, taking up its stockpile and then you could shoot missiles after that but the point is so so the whole missile defense system is mostly a scam to further uh pry out uh, defense department resources but the point is is that uh the missile defense system the sod is already integrated into the global missile defense system of the u.s and it's being placed right in the middle of south korea uh with the justification of the uprk so the, the U.S. doesn't want to have South Korea to eagerly pursue talks with North Korea and then, uh, like, decenter themselves out of the conversation, uh, contributing to lowering tensions. 
that oh, was that's never a the case. really good res- that's a really good response to that well since we're we seem to be like zeroing in on east asia should we go to the next article oh, sure Greg, sure yeah that was something oh i just wanted to say something real quick about the viewpoint article like based on boris said it reminded me something specifically they mentioned about the the factional disputes within the ruling class and Kind of one thing you're talking about, the kind of diverging interests between like the U.S. and domestic capitals and Korea reminding me about how, while they don't necessarily contradict each other, there are conflicting interests between the, I guess, the domestic kind of capitalists that we think, you know, like industrialist finance capital, you know, traditional people who just make money and then the NASDAQ sphere, you know, right. The, the military industrial complex, the generals, the intelligence agencies, you know, the article used Cuba as a reference, how like American capital actually was sort of tentatively and supportive song relations with Cuba as a potential new business investments can open up. But the NASDAQ sphere saw it as, as a, you know, a huge, you know, threat, you know, trying to open up relations, what they see as the, Sort of the closest threat to the to U.S. hegemony as a socialist island that's only a couple of miles away from Florida, whereas, but I think the same could be said about South Korea, right? Sort of like, you know, um, the Chables don't really have a firm position on North Korea. I think, right? Because it's because I remember, I want to say during the Kim Dae-jung era. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a scandal where one of the Chables was discovered to have. Uh, legally send large sums of money to the North Korean government to um, convince them to open up negotiations with the South. So, you know, the case of industrial complex, you know, shows that they are open to investment in North Korea because they said, you know, it's the more resource rich part of Korea. It has a large cheap labor force, you know, but the uh, the Nasdaq sphere in Korea, right? The intelligence agencies like the NIS, you know, those who support the U.S. military alliance, see this as basically a threat to the uh, Korea's role as part of a U.S.-based alliance or front against the uh, you know the communist forces of North Korea and China. The Cuba example, like again, I, I hate to draw back to U.S., but it's a reference point for me personally. Um, yeah, the Cuba thing is a great example. Like, you know, in the the Cold War period, like isolating Cuba made a lot of sense in terms of both preserving capital and like geopolitically. But like, I mean, unfortunately, Cuba is no longer in a position to export revolution. Like there are no Che Guevara's going from Cuba to like Bolivia and other places and instigating revolution. So like uh, the article briefly references that like a lot of U.S. companies lobbied the U.S. government to like in the embargo because there's a lot of business opportunity in Cuba. And Cuba is sort of like, you know, we talked about this on our previous episode with Rodrigo. There is this sort of like very complicated thing that the Cuban government's trying to do. It's like sort of trying to cope with geopolitical realities and kind of, you know, wants foreign investment, but trying to be careful about it because it might overwhelm project they're trying to build so that that is an example of the state having these like conflicting things like capital like capital in this like the state is concerned with like miami voters and these sort of like you know hang-ups about cold war bullshit that is not like raw business people like are just like cuba isn't a market that is closed and one thing that the article talks about is that one way that capital expands is by opening up previously closed markets and cuba is closed to u.s capital 
for the most part. Um, there was a brief opening, you know, 2017, which is when I went to Cuba, but uh, that was closed very quickly once Trump was elected. And I think the author did a good job, like, pointing this out, that, like, the state and capital are not always on the same page. There's not a one-to-one thing. I mean, the author, like, sort of tries to explore the theoretical ways and, like, the historical ways and, you know, teases it out, like, in very uh, good detail. But uh, just to give a pragmatic, like, practical example that I think a lot of people will know about, like, Cuba, the Cuban uh, engagement thing, I think, is a good example of that. Because airlines... Uh, tour companies, like how many fucking hotel complex, like Trump would love to build a hotel in, in, in Cuba. Um, so there's this like conflict between capital wanting to move into this previously closed market that has a lot of potential uh, value um, versus like the state having these like kind of non, not exclusively economic concerns that restrain them from opening up to Cuba. I think there is there is a economic underpinning, maybe you know, right in in the views of um, the, the national security sphere. You know what they see is well, you're bringing in large amounts of capital in an anti-American or a state that does not believe in the um, you know liberal capitalist order, right? You know, like I don't want to. Um, mm. No, that's a good point. I don't want to get. I don't want to get too much into it, but I mean, like, you're seeing these arguments now with China, right? As oh, you know, like, there's a like if you read business articles in Bloomberg or Wall Street Journal, there's ideas like, oh, we were tricked into coming to China because they were opening up and they were they had this cheap labor pool and resources, and you know, but now they're using all this technology and money to like basically build industries that are directly competing with U.S. interests and filling into an alternative economic system that the U.S. has created the past few decades. I'm not saying. I- um, I'm not saying I necessarily agree with that description, but I think it shows that, like, from their perspective, you know, like, I'm sure if you talk to, like, people on the FBI or the CIA or the, like, um, NIS, I think it's called in Korea, they probably do see opening up with these socialist countries as, like, naive and, you know, a more long-term threat to the economic order. So, yeah, so this article called Towards an East Asian Solidarity from Below – uh talks about briefly talks about uh contemporary trends and development and it, and reasons for its instability how so it starts out just by outlining a brief like uh and then it moves on to a discourses on east asia now i think this part of the article was the one that I had the most trouble translating because the discourses of East Asia is really a South Korean thing uh, without any reference to anything abroad, uh, which makes these discussions hold like specific connotations that I found it from kind of hard to translate. But anyhow, uh, there was a brief moment in the 90s and early 2000s where the topic of East Asia was like really, really popular to the point of in the 2000s, uh, the government was sponsoring, funding a lot of research that had the key words as East Asia in it. It started out, by, but but it started out not as some sort of government-sponsored liberalization uh, economic kind of planning uh, project, but as one on 
uh, one by the left after the fall of the Soviet Union, after the end of the Cold War, how to uh, develop a perspective that isn't trapped within just one country, but still trying to provide some sort of alternative. They, the, the word East Asia was thought to be have like uh, was a way of opening up uh, imagination so that we could talk about holding a broader sort of perspective into it. Uh, but then social scientists came in and kind of hijacked it in a sense. Uh, so that you could also see lots of uh, talks about the four dragons of East Asia. So what, what would be the key explanation for why uh, the four East Asian uh, was it tigers or dragons? But anyhow, how how these four? Uh, it was tigers, yeah. Yeah, Singapore, uh, <laughs> fucking Hong animals. Kong, South Korea. I think it was Taiwan. Yeah, yeah, it was tigers. So, yeah, the Asian tigers. I yeah, Taiwan. I don't like know why early, the dragons came. Early aughts, like early two thousand. Exactly. Yeah, kind of thing. And and there were reasons uh, pro- uh, provided would be uh, these are all Confucian countries. The, the their values are different, more collective. Like all the reasons why what explained their underdevelopment were now utilized to explain their success in developing. So, but anyhow, these discourses there's like four different ways of uh, approaching East Asia. There's this culturalist conception. There's this way of trying to explain development. There's this one way of an alternative to uh, a bigger perspective from the left and using East Asia as a jumping off point. And then the last one would be this kind of grand scheme from at the government level, at, at the higher up levels of trying to create these economic fears and placing South Korea in the middle of it and trying to propose this kind of universalized South Korea and South Korea trying to provide a sort of a vision where economic prosperity can happen from with contributions from Japan, China, et cetera, et cetera. So that would be the East Asia from above. And there's obviously a U.S. presence in the region that contributes to its uh, internal, I guess, tensions as well. But then how how could we develop, further develop that uh, leftist perspective on East Asia that would uh, fully acknowledge the historical tensions between the the nation states that exist here uh, in the region uh, that will not al- try to pry away the working class being worked in to the, that that sort of nas- those sort of nationalisms and trying to create a sort of uh, international solidarity based upon uh, what is common in in these in the struggles of both uh, workers and also other social movements so. For for example, fem- feminism is a big topic, uh, and East Asian women are also finding commonalities. So they're reaching out to each other, trying to learn from each other. So Japanese feminists would take inspiration from the developments of the Me Too movement in South Korea. There would also be massive like sales for. Kim Ji-young born in 1982 that was translated into Chinese. That was also an inspiration. There's inspirations drawn from how Chinese feminists struggle against the Chinese state in South Korea as well. 
And also Taiwan would be the beacon for LGBTQ plus struggles and feminist struggles in the East Asian region. But there would also be, I don't know, one of, one of, the, one of my favorite examples that come out in this article would be solidarity between the KCTU, uh, the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, with uh, working alongside with migrant workers and creating, having this kind of MOU with the Nepalese Confederation of Trade Unions. So that's how uh, the chairperson of the migrant trade union in South Korea is fully employed in the KCTU. And there's also uh, a network developed where Nepalese workers that are planning to come into Korea are first educated and about their labor rights and who to whom to reach out to in Nepal before coming here. So that was another development out of M, of the MOUs. Uh, that's that's uh, that is a great example of concrete international solidarity. So it's amazing. But yeah. there's lots of practices and strategies to be developed. Uh, regarding regarding how to concretize this, uh, I, I personally go around and talk about how international solidarity is solidly a a blue ocean. So you would there's this general sense of uh, melancholia in the South Korean left, and it's it's penetrating all sectors of the social movements where it's not the golden age anymore and everyone is having a hard time sort of reproducing their organization and, and stuff like that. But if you draw, try to draw inspirations from abroad, learn from lessons there, reach out and see how our struggles aren't ours alone, that we can kind of, these, these struggles are common, that we can build these things together. Like it's, it's a huge source for, another sort of energy and it's it's really some a i guess a problem that isn't being addressed a lot people have interests but uh south korea is practically an island not just in the geographical geopolitical sense but also uh it really does not have people do not have relationships outside of the country well, one thing that was a great summary, by the way, and I'm glad you picked this article. It was really interesting, and your translation was totally solid. Really great job on that. Um, one thing that I immediately thought of is like, um, so like the forging of new identities. Like there, there is this, and it's coming from both the left and the right in terms of not the right, like the far right, but I mean, it's coming from both the left, and it's also coming from like the U.S.'s economic strategy and like. Uh, some East Asian countries' economic strategy to forge a sort of East Asian identity. I think from the sort of neoliberal perspective, it's to start laying the foundations for somewhat of a common market. And the, immediately what comes to mind for me is the EU. So, I mean, prior to the World War II, I mean, kind of there was, but there wasn't really a European identity. I mean, this is sort of a post-war thing. And there were a lot of reasons why a European identity came into being after World War II. Um, from the left, it was sort of residual internationalism combined with like a horror at ever going back to those two world wars that happened. So like there was this need to sort of like kind of get beyond petty nationalisms. And I think from 
the left in East Asia, it's an attractive concept and maybe a good one to like forge an East Asian identity to like sort of go beyond some of the, the same similar things. I'm not trying to say that like Europe and its intercontinental, intracontinental conflicts are, you know, directly the same as what has gone on in East Asia in the past century, but there are some parallels. But when I, I think about this East Asian, this concept of like an East Asian identity, which is very attractive in a lot of ways uh, from an internationalist perspective. I just think about the way the EU turned out, though. It's like, you know, Germany and France kind of run the show. And like, I think if there was some sort of like, because, you know, the way the EU started, it first started as like, you know, uh, I think it was like, I forget the name of the agreement. It was like a basic agreement. It was like a common market on some like sort of like key, a few key like industrial commodities. And they were kind of testing it out. It's like they were sort of like dating a little bit and seeing how it works out. And then like, they'll see if they want to commit. <laughs> um, and I think I worry about like, there's going to be, you know, the U.S. is so-called pivot to Asia, which I think is referenced in this article. If you have an East Asian sort of common market sort of structure, it's going to be like an anti-China bulwark with sort of like Japan is the Germany and South Korea is the France. Um, and they'll be like the senior and junior partners running the whole thing. And like, because, you know, the way that we, we all saw this with Greece, right? The way the EU works, it's hardly an egalitarian communion of equal states. But that aside, what I really liked in the article is that unlike the first article, which this is OK, it posed interesting questions. It didn't try to offer any solutions. What I love about this article, which is kind of rare with left wing articles because people don't want to are too hesitant about this. At the end, there's just sort of like, these are like, I think it's four or five things that we should like do. And I like that. I like when an article ends with like concrete, actionable things that we should do. And you just gave a great example. Like South Korea has many migrant laborers. You're involved with that work, Bori. And some of them come from Nepal. Like concrete international solidarity is exactly what you talked about. Before these workers come to South Korea, educate them, educate them you know, organize educational services to know when you come to South Korea, even though you're a migrant worker, you do have these rights, be aware of them. And these are, you know, you can have these labor rights enforced. So what I really loved about that article that you translated, the second article is that it gives this good overview of this whole question of like East Asia and like the complications of solidarity, you know, South Korea and Japan, for example, like building ties there is like complicated by all this historical stuff, obviously. But at the end, it like brings it back down to the ground. It's like, all right, now this is what these are some tentative kind of, you know, they're kind of broad, but it's like shit you can do. Well, I, I, I agree with your, I guess, concerns with building this sort of East Asian identity, Mike. And that was precisely the plan and the excitement, the fervor, the behind the funding by Nomuyan Kim Dae-jung's governments of this sort of East Asian project of so under Nomion, there was talk about making South Korea the hub of finance of East Asia. But the thing is, is that it failed. Every, every national project had its own kind of priorities and no one agreed on the terms. Like South Korea was too explicit. Like, it, it, like placing itself at the center was too on the nose. China, like it doesn't... From what I from what I can tell, it doesn't think of itself as part of East Asia as such. Like it's too continental. Well, that was my point. Is this East Asian identity excludes China, in my understanding, uh, from the the, the neoliberal? Sure, but that's, of it, that that wasn't the case when it was uh, first like con- conceived of. 
by from the above oh, okay. like china was trying to be included nowadays that's completely changed you're right about that but uh but th- and and it's a warring development uh a lot of people in south korea just have this sinophobia and it's very very it's very very worrying concerning because like any any sort of content on youtube uh that brings in china or it seems to be have been made by someone related to china like that's all it's scoured with uh comments that talk about tianmen how all good chinese died back then uh good chinese is only a dead chinese like comments like these are just prevalent everywhere on the internet and people hate china more so than they of do so of Ch- japan uh for japan they can separate the government the far right like elements from the general populace or its culture but there's no separation happening for china I know there was a poll that came out recently that the majority of South Koreans oppose China more than Japan, which is a little shocking for me to read. I don't know. I used to make the joke that like you can tell oh that if you lean left in Korea, you hate Japan. If you lean right, you hate China. Uh so, so currently it's 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 really worrying the amount of like there is no restraint there at all. Like there is no it's really hard to bring up the topic of china without these very stupid comments very xenophobic and it's the funny thing is is that it's unilateral i don't think chinese think about the koreans in this any sort of this fashion most of the time there there has been i think a few, a few years prior where there was these big anti korean protests in china but uh it, it was it was it's also funny because that was kind of suppressed by the chinese government it wasn't something that they tried to flame up in any sense uh in korea that's sadly not the case uh, the government isn't having i don't think they have a they have they're like actively playing into the sentiment but i don't it's it's definitely some sort of topic that we'll have to address more much more more and more one of the i guess uh contributions that platform C has is that it Myeonggyo spent a year in China back in 2018 uh met with a lot of social movement activists student militants maoists there uh wrote about his experiences into a book which was published last month and there's a running joke that the C in platform C is China because of all the regular articles that either translate or brings in news from China mostly about its social movements and it's it's one of the few voices out there that does that most of it like the business papers really put out really stupid uh stuff about China really playing into these uh anti sinophobic sentiments about how the chinese are trying to appropriate kimchi etc etc it's and then how like the recent ban on fan clubs in china is an act of anti-korean uh like move where most of the fan clubs the, the big ones like there was no discrimination between chinese or korean uh celebrities it, like it was a uni- unilateral complete ban 
but Korean newspapers only picked up about how BTS was banned and makes makes it seem like if as if the Chinese government is banning exclusively Korean Korean celebrities fan clubs. Sarah says, I mean, I kind of wanted to kind of follow up on what you guys said about China specifically. Well, I wanted to kind of talk about you references, Mike, about um, kind of creating a broad economic kind of front against China. And I mean, like, that's what the TPP was, right? It was this idea of like, you know, this was a very controversial topic in the United States at the time about, you know, trying to open up, uh, what's the word, uh, open up trade with these East Asian nations. And it, but it had a specific like, national security reason about this idea of they wanted to create an economic buffer against China's like rapidly growing economy, you know, because they, I don't want to say they realized, but then there was, you know, the growing narrative that, you know, China's economic growth wasn't liberalizing China, but it was doing the opposite, right? It was building up an economic base to inc- to increase China's regional hegemony in Asia. Is that you started to see this in like nations' foreign policies? Like, I don't like I don't want to keep talking about Vietnam, but you know, there's a lot of controversy about what is Vietnam's position as you know, it's a communist state with formal relationships with China, not just on a diplomatic level, but on a level as a communist party, like they're, they are part of an international federation, you know, but also like a couple of years ago, the Vietnamese government was very close to buying American weapons under the Obama administration. It didn't happen because Congress voted against it in the U.S., you know, but it shows like, is, you know, Vietnam drifting away from China, you know, like, but then you saw recently, right, the U.S. government asked Vietnam to be part of a united front against Chinese influence the same way um, South Korea and Japan was. And the Vietnamese government said, no, you know, we need to respect communist internationalism. And it's like, whether you believe that or not. But I think Vietnam shows that the position of the smaller countries in East Asia and why China is starting to get excluded from this perspective of like an East Asian identity that wasn't the case a couple you know years ago is that a lot of these smaller states that aren't firmly within either region's sphere of influence basically want a multipolar world. They want to play these powers against each other because it means that they get to rise up top. You know, and I think that's important because it shows an alternative path to you know, you either be like South Korea, Japan, where you're firmly within the U.S. influence sphere of influence, which you know, doesn't just affect the the military sphere, but it does. It is starting to affect the economic sphere, right? The U.S. is starting to put pressure now on these countries about, you know, their role in the supply chain. So the point I was trying to bring about about the East Asian identity is that it's no longer talked about at all. So when this piece pr- pr- uh, provokes a talk about East Asian identity while translating and introducing a lot of uh, contemporary Chinese social movements and the struggles they're going through, that's 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 the entirety of it. Like then, this sort of East Asian solidarity being forged would include at least the Chinese social movements within it, which is currently in a very uh, hard spot uh, because difficult place between a hard spot and Iraq uh, because of all all the repression happening. Uh, you can talk about like the the title of the book that Myunga wrote is literally to the friends that have disappeared, uh, and 
all all the student Maoists have been locked up and uh, they aren't being like they've had to make public conf- uh, confessions of renouncing their previous uh, actions, etc. Uh, that's that's the amount of suppression that they're going under right now, and uh, it's it's really in contrast to the brief opening up under Hu Jintao. But it so while that's a concern, it's all it's already like it, it it's not at the level of like not being conscious about the possibility of it being appropriated from above. And the anti-Chinese sentiment is something that is already addressed in the possibility of forging an East Asian identity from below. Uh, one thing I kind of got from both articles is, I think especially you know on the left, I think really all parts of the left, regardless where you're from, we tend to try to create a universal blueprint for how the world works, you know. And you see this issue a lot with specific, you know, such as the anti-imperialist left, who you know, seems to reduce everything to a sense of, you know, America's main enemy, you know, anything America does is bad and does the other side is good, you know, but you can all see the other side, you know, which tends to devolve into, you know, dirt campus views and sort of naive kind of notions of how to actually build power, you know, but these are, but, you know, especially the viewpoint article kind of shows that like, no, like capital has contradictions, you know, they, it's it's just like the la- just like the left. It's factional, and so certain factions went out in certain battles in certain continents and regions. Capital has contradictions. You know that it is factional, and that certain factions, you know, win certain ba- disputes and battles over different regions and continents. And we need to understand that when we organize, like the conditions in Latin America is not the same as Africa. It's not the same as the Middle East. It's not the same as East Asia. It's not even the same as Southeast Asia, right? We talk about East Asian identity, but the Southeast is very different too. You know, like the relationship between countries in the East and the Southeast is, is it's also unequal, not just on an economic level, but even on a cultural level, like there is a lot of like discrimination. Yeah. I'll, I guess I'll just briefly touch upon the issue of translation. So this piece was initially written in a a kind of short uh, magazine for the social movements in South Korea. So it was reaching an uh, activist, South Korean activist audience. Uh, Whereas that activist audience is not just like, uh, is also, I don't, what do you call it? Like developed, like workers with, Higher consciousness. I, I don't know what the term is right now, but not just like people from student activism backgrounds. It's it's for a South Korean audience. It was it's it's basically a book review of this book called East Asian Discourse, which covers all all the different approaches and different differences between those approaches of the two decades that the East Asian Discourse was very very high based on a dissertation that the author wrote. And so it's it's very based in South Korea. Uh but it's it's an it's a it's a piece that informs our approach in reaching out to East Asian comrades, Asian comrades else elsewhere. And so there's this kind of discrepancy there. It's the piece itself wasn't written for an international audience, yet it does inform our approach in reaching out to the international audience in the first place. Uh, 
And then another issue would be that it's really hard to approach uh, material about South Korea's social movements in English. And there's a really lack, a big lack of documentation. What what sort of discussions are being held place? uh, What sort of efforts are being made? uh, What are the impasses that the South Korean left finds itself in, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not easy, but um, it's definitely a first step. Uh, Hopefully people will read this article contribute, discuss it, and uh, reach out with more thoughts about it. I think the first initial steps would, on the one hand, uh, trade unions in South Korea are at their own level reaching out to other organizations and building relationships there. But we also need more information disseminated to a broader activist audience and that is shared at the international level as well. And I think that's why I brought this piece to be discussed today, uh, because I think that informs not just Platform C's approach, but also Red Star Over Asia's approach in trying to create a sort of international network for Asian leftists, activists, militants. so hopefully this this will this will have something to chew about. Uh, people have something to chew on with this article, and hopefully Salar's piece also clarifies some uh, points to chew on as well. Uh, thanks for listening, and do check out the articles. We'll link it in the descriptions. <laughs>